Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you in the word and ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at your word in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 43, starting at verse 1. Afterward, he brought me up to the gate, even to the gate which looks toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision which I saw when I came to, de to destroy the city, and the visions were like an, the vision I saw at, by the river Sebar. And I fell upon my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit came, took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard him speaking, out and, speaking unto me out of the house, and the man stood by me. So we look at this. He's been talking about the temple, and he talked about, he's described it for the last several chapters. And we've talked about this being the, chap the Millennial Kingdom chapter. And we're going to get into some things that make me wonder whether it's the Millennial Kingdom chap uh, temple at all because it starts talking about sin offerings and everything. There's certain offerings that I know will happen in the Millennial Kingdom. But this one, just this chapter here, if we get far enough into it, makes me wonder because it talks about the sin offerings. And those should not be going on during that time because Jesus has paid for the sin offerings already. So... There may be a mixing of these things between the Millennial Temple and the temple that, that was uh, rebuilt in Ezra and Nehemiah's days. We've been talking about measuring the temple and all of this, and then it says, afterwards he brought or literally carried me to the gate, even to the gate that looks to the east. And we've talked about how there's a gate on the east, the north and the south. And he says, behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many thunders, and the earth shone un with his glory. And you, I just kind of really think about this, you know, the, the glory of God, the kabod, the, the bright shining glory coming down and sweeping through the, the gate of the temple. And you know, I, I can't even imagine what, what he saw on this one. You know, the glory of God is something that man can't even begin to fathom. And he sees it coming down and going through this gate. Said it, and it said it was noisy. Noise of, the, of a many waters. And this is loud, rushing waters. You know, I think of something like uh, Niagara Falls, which you hear from a long distance away. Or even, even some of the other big rivers, when they're, when they're really flowing, you can hear them from all over the place, and this is what he's talking about, that kind of rumbling noise. And he says the earth shone with his glory. And I, I can just, can't even picture that. Moses' face shone after he'd spent time with uh, God, with the glory of God. Uh, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration had a shining about him that the disciples saw. Um, so I, I mean, there's many incidences of God's glory shining out amongst men. It sounds like all these instances of something where you could, uh, just for a, a nanosecond, just envision, and then it's locked in your mind, and then you close your eyes or bow your head and get on the ground or something. Quite possible, because usually people hit the ground, and we're going to see him hit the ground here at various times. Uh, but yes, I, I mean, it is such a, you know, matter of fact, it even says so in verse 3, he fell on his, and he fell upon his face. And he said it was like the vision he saw when according to the vision I saw that it came to destroy or corrupt the city. 
Uh, and the visions were like the vision I saw at the river Sibar, and I fell on my face. This goes back to a reference to chapter one, when he sees the wheel upon wheels and the, all the things that are hard to picture. And he says, this glory of God had the resemblance of that very first picture of God that he saw way back at the beginning of the book. And, you know, we think about this. You know, he gets to see the glory of God. That's got to make an impression. You know, I can, I can know what it feels like sometimes just to feel the presence of God so mightily sometimes, and that makes an impression. To be able to see and feel God's presence, that would be just an amazing, amazing thing to have, have happen. And, you know, and looking forward to the day that I get to see his glory, spend, spend eternity with him. More and more as I, as I look at what's going on around this world and everything, I'm saying, God, I'm just looking forward to the day that we get to just be with you. And it's all, everything is all done and over with. And I'm hearing more and more of the pastors on the radio say that. You know, they're just looking forward to the day of going home. Not that any of us want to give up on this world, but at the same time, the, the fighting is tiresome. You know, fighting for God's, God's will, God's desire is so tiresome. And all the various things that are going on that are so evil make it so hard to get through and to try to go through and hear Ezekiel saying, I saw God's glory. Isaiah, when, in Isaiah 6, when he sees God's glory, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And the angels cried, Holy, holy. And he says, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a land of unclean people. And just seeing the glory of God makes us realize, number one, how unclean we are. And then when we see how unclean we are and we've been sanctified and redeemed and consecrated to look around at how evil the world is. And that is what's really starting to get to me. It's just how evil everything is around us. Everywhere you look, everything you see, this evil's being celebrated. Uh, you know, the homosexual agenda, the LGBT agenda that's going on and being glorified in our country and around the world. You know, and, and you just think, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for that very sin, and here is our country, a Christian country, supposedly, glorifying sin, glorifying the, the fornication of so many people, glorifying the lying of every, you know, so many people. And you go, God, how much longer can it be before you return? But there's all this whole thing going on right now, and it's just, you know, God, how much longer will you go before you finally judge? And you know, the churches, you know, at least the churches that are biblical-based are standing against it, but it's not, you know, it doesn't seem like we're making any headway, you know, but just tells us we're at the end times when, when days will be as the days of Noah, and the world was being destroyed because of it. And we just look at it and say, God, what, what more is there? You know, how much longer? How much longer till you've had enough? And go forward, you know, keep going forward with him. Verse 4 then says, The glory of the Lord came, to the, came into the house, which literally is temple, by the way of the east gate, of the gate whose prospect or face is toward the east. So this is always this, this idea that God's coming from the east, you know, in the Old Testament especially. And we see this over and over that the eastern sky is where he comes from. And I think some of it has to do with the sunrise and the sunlight and all of that. But here it is, God, God says he's coming in from the east 
entering into the temple, so that the Spirit took, so the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house or that inner temple. And this is several times that this has happened in the scriptures. When they built the tabernacle, God's spirit filled the tabernacle and nobody could go into it because of the Shekinah glory or the kabod that dwelt upon it. Solomon built the, the first temple and God's glory fell upon the temple. And here we're seeing the same thing that God's talking about, his glory filling the temple. And, you know, we think about this. We, as Christians, are called the temple of God, and God's spirit fills us. His glory fills us. If we only realized that he's filling us and his glory abides in us. And this is something that is so wonderful to think about, that God dwells in us with all of his glory, all of his power, all of his majesty dwelling in us, hidden in our flesh, and he wants to come out. You know, we're just like the rest of the temples. He fills us. We, the only problem is with us, not everybody sees it. It sees it that brightly. But you know, I've seen glimpses of God's glory in different people at various times. And you know, when they're living for God just, just so, and they've honored God, and God's glory shines out just a little bit. Just a little bit. It says that he went into the inner court and beheld. And then he heard him speaking unto him out of the house, and the man stood by, and that's the man who's been guiding him through all of this, which quite probably is Jesus. Chapter 1 was a picture of Jesus standing on the, with his feet on the land on straddling the water. But most of this comes from, we, to really understand this, we do have to go back to chapter 1 where he sees the angel of the, of the Lord, which I know is, you know, through, because he accepts the worship, is Jesus. And all of that goes on with, with that glory. And so he's seeing the same thing here, except now the glory is taking residence within the temple that he's seeing. And before the glory was where his people were being held captive in Babylon. And now he's seeing the glory fall upon the house or enter into the house. Verse 7, And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever and my holy name shall be the house of Israel, and uh, shall be my holy name. Shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings, by their whoredoms, nor their carcasses of their kings in their high places, in their settings of their thresholds, by my thresholds, by their posts, by my post, and the wall between them, they have even defiled my holy name with their abominations that they have committed. Wherefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoredom and their carcasses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them. So here we have God saying, Son of man, this is where I'm going to dwell, this temple. He's reiterating that he's going to dwell in the temple. The God of the universe, the omnipresent God, says I'm going to put my presence here. This is where he says I'm going to be able to show myself. But he's done that with the tabernacle. He's done that with the temple. And now with this temple that they're talking about, he says, I'm going to dwell there. And by the same token for us, he dwells in us, and he calls us a temple. And he literally dwells in us. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in us. Okay, question. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. Of my feet, it's not my capitalized 
you know, this is the man uh, mm -hmm. deciding, uh, speaking. Uh, so they think that it's probably... Yeah, whoever interpreted that one definitely thinks it's Jesus speaking to them. Yeah. And I would not have a problem with that. I, I do believe that this man that he's speaking to him is probably Jesus. Uh, so I would have no problem with that being <laughs> capitalized. Yeah. But the whole thing sounds like it is. I mean, it's him talking. It's, uh, you know, so I do believe that it's Jesus, you know, because of the words being said here. Uh, it says, my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile. And I think, and this is why we know we're into the millennial kingdom, or even post-new world. But I don't think, I don't think what we're going to see happening is in the new, the new heaven and new earth, because we're going to be talking about sacrifices and all that in the, in the new heaven and new earth. And I don't think that's going to be happening. So I do believe here that he's saying, it's going to come a time that Israel is not going to defile my name. And uh, he says, they, they've uh, defiled his name. Neither they, nor their kings, nor their whoredoms, nor the carcasses of their kings in the high places. As I did some research on this, the kings most people believe is talking about idols. Not, not the physical kings, but the idols that they worship. Which again, that would be, make sense. In the middle, middle, millennial kingdom, there will not be the worship of the idols or the high places or any of that. So God's saying they're not going to defile me even themselves or with their idols or with their whoredoms or prostitution bowing down to these other gods or with the carcasses of these idols. We talked about a couple chapters ago, they, they were throwing their idols into the, into the gar, uh, caves and, and secret places. And God's saying, no, none of this, none of these past things are going to be even a thought in their process and they're not, and they're not going to be in their high places. And this will be when Jesus rules, all of the idols will be taken away. You know, and I've mentioned many times that you read through Kings and Chronicles, and it says such and such king came up and he got rid of this worship and that worship, but he didn't clear out the groves or the high places, you know, or, or he cleared out the high places and the groves, but he didn't get rid of something else. And, but Jesus will come along and he will get rid of all false religions, all in, incorrect worship. And, you know, again, looking forward to that day. And I think about this. How many Christians, people who say they're Christians, are not going to looking forward to heaven simply because they look at heaven being a boring place where they're going to worship God? And to me, the greatest part that we have is to worship God. So I'm looking forward to heaven and to be more, more worshiping of God than anything else. And yet, so many people make it sound like, well, it's going to be boring just worshiping God. And I, and I can see that sometimes when I watch around, when I look around when worship time is going on and people are not, not engaged in worship, not enjoying worship. And I'm going, this is what heaven's all about, spending time with the one that we love and worshiping him. Yeah. It's going to be better than anything we can even, even contemplate. Uh, and then in verse 8, in their settings or their appointments or assignments of their thresholds with, by my thresholds and their post by my post and their wall by, between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, whereupon I have consumed them in mine anger. 
And when I read this verse, I think about what's done in the name of God so often. You know, they're setting up things next to God and saying, this is just like God, or this is what God wants, and it's nothing like what God wants. And we see it in churches all the time. We see, we see it in the way Christians live, and they put these things up, and they'll say, this is, this, is, this is God. This is just what God says to do. And you're going, it's not in the scriptures. How can you be doing this? You, you've got to accept this. You've got to accept that. And this is what God's saying here. You're setting up your your porches next to mine. You're setting up your pillars next to mine. You're putting your walls between you and me, and then saying that it's me. And yeah, everything about this sounds that has to be yeah. Jesus, because it's talking very bluntly about all this. But you know, I think about this. How many times do people set up things near God's way of doing things, not quite God's way of doing things, but it's all what they want? And we see it a lot of times even with when people come to church. You know, there's always these people that think that coming to church is all about them instead of worshiping God. I don't like the singing. I don't like this. I don't like this. Or, you know, I don't, I don't like what's being said. You know, I don't like what's going on. And the question is, are we coming here to worship God or are we coming in here to please myself? And this is something we've got to come up to, setting up our post, our, our thresholds next to God and saying, God, I'm not pleased with what you're doing, is not what it's all about. It's a defiling of what he wants. And it's not going to be done 100% of the time, but we do need to come in ready to worship. We do need to come in ready to say, God, I'm here for you. Not what am I going to get out of it. The good news is we do usually get something out of it. We should have some enjoyment on it, but it's not about us. We're coming to worship God. And it's one of the things when we sing songs, you know, no matter what song we sing, not everybody in the church is going to be happy because of the songs we sing. Not everybody's going to be happy about the order of the service. Not, you know, it, it just doesn't happen that way. And I've been in plenty of times when I look, I'm going, God, I'm just worshiping you. I don't particularly care for this song, but I'm worshiping you. And then there's like, oh, God, I really love this song. <laughs> And those ones are fun. Those, when, you, when you're enjoying the songs, they're fun. But sometimes it's just a matter of looking to God and saying, God, I want to worship you. I want to do what you want. And I want to do whatever it is that you want me to do, God. And too many times we try to do what we think is right or what we want to do. And, and, I, and I love the, the quote that we've had up for this last month, you know, um, we're not here to do our, uh, we're here to do God's will and not our own will, and the two are not the same. You know, our will and God's will are not the same. You know, what I want, usually, more often than not, is not what God wants, because usually what I want makes me look good or makes me feel good. And God is saying, I'm not here for you, I'm here for me. I'm here for my name to be lifted up. I'm here for my glory to be lifted up. And we need to be able to do more of that, serve one another more, love one another more, and lift one another up. And let, let others be lifted up. Now, our pride gets in the way so often you know, when, when we don't get the glory or honor we think we deserve out of the deal. And we watch others seem to get glory and honor at that time. And very important to let God be put up, be lifted up. And then in verse 9, he continues, Now let them put away their whoredoms and their carcasses of their kings far from me 
and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. The more we get rid of our evil, our abominations, our idols, the more God fills us and dwells with us. And this is something I have seen over the years. The more of me that he gets out, the more of my sin he gets out of me, the more of him that I get to see. And the more of him that I get to see, the more of him I want. <laughs> Even though it hurts sometimes to get rid of some of the stuff he wants to get rid of. And, you know, but it is something at the same time I desire so much more of him. Old, old uh, uh, Sunday school song we used to sing is, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. I want more of Jesus uh, than I ever had before, more of his sweet love, so, so rich, so full and free. I want more of Jesus, so I'll give him more of me. And that's really true. The more we give him of us, the more he fills in. God, take my, you know, take my evil being and do what you want with it and give me more of you. And then he'll take that and he'll throw it out and he'll give us more and he'll fill us. And by filling us, he starts changing us to be more like him. And it really is a cycle that keeps going on. And the more of us that we'll give up, the more of him we'll see in our life. To the point where maybe we can be in a, an Enoch or Elijah and go to heaven early. <laughs> Verse 10. Thou said a man, show the house of the to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they be ashamed of all they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the goings out thereof and the comings in thereof and all of the forms thereof and all the ordinance thereof and all the forms thereof and, of, and all the laws thereof and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof to do them. This is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain, the whole limit thereof round about shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. And this one's kind of an interesting thing because God is now saying there's some rules, there's some things you're going to look at. It says, Son of man, show the house, the house that we've been talking about, to the house or the nation of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And this idea of being ashamed, uh, put to shame, confounded, dishonor, you know, that they will take and say, when we do wrong, they recognize that it's wrong. And you know, as Christians, that's what we're supposed to be. We get that conviction of our, of our sin, and that drives us to confess our sins and to ask God to cleanse us of our sin. But how many times have we seen people who have no problem sinning and don't even think twice about it? Especially we know what happens in the world. It's really sad when we see it in amongst Christians, or at least people who say they're Christians, where they can just sin and not seem to show any shame or repentance to it at all. And then you have to say, God, don't know, but you know. <laughs> God, get hold of them. And God's saying, we need to be having this dishonor, this shame of when sin comes into our life and recognize it for what it is. And this is something, and that's what I've said earlier, you know, to me, I'm struggling so much with just looking at how much sin is abounding in this country, in this, in this world, and people do not seem to have a problem with it. I see it all the time at work that you know, there's these people that just 
sin and talk about sin as if it's nothing. They don't know what sin is. They don't. We watch it on TV. These people, the, the actors and everything, treat sin as if it's something to joke about and to that it's normal. And, you know, it kind of just, you look at it and say, God, this is so sickening. You know, how can this peak going on? And you realize they don't know God. They haven't, they haven't taken this idea that they're to be ashamed of their iniquities. And here he's saying, you know, you've measured this. You've measured all of this temple. You've, you've shown them the pattern. You've shown them what I want. Tell them about it. And this is some of the things that we do. When we did the evangelism class, we, sh we talked about how they, they use that idea of bringing people to the Ten Commandments as their standard point. You know, you think you're going to heaven? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why? Because I'm a good person. Are you really a good person? By whose standard are you a good person? And this is something we've got to truly understand. Even we as sanctified, born-again Christians aren't good people except by the grace of Jesus Christ and the, and the dwelling of him in us, but our flesh is nothing but evil. And we need to be able to understand that. And that gives us the idea to be merciful to others if we really recognize who we are and, we're a get, and we have shame for our sin, we can start having this idea that others need to know about it. And all of this comes by the teaching of the Word of God. I can't remember. Was this whole thing with Ezekiel addressed to the Israelites specifically? Yeah, the book is basically to the Israelites. Yeah. Now, we learn from it, but most of it is to them. Most of the Old Testament is to the Israelites as the primary target. We, we can learn from all of that, just as even with the New Testament, the New Testament was to the churches that it's referring to, but we, were lear we were learned from what they were exhorted to do. Uh, very few places had us in mind, you know, specifically John 17, where Jesus prays for those who will believe without seeing, and there's a handful of places where, where the audience was somebody in our day and age. But most of it we're taking kind of vicariously. None of it was really meant for us. It doesn't mean we don't learn from it or can't, can't learn from it because we have the same problems. I've got a problem with that one verse that says, you know, there's no excuse that people shouldn't know. It's, there's things that happen that reminds them of their lifestyle and they need a change. It's just like they don't know about this and yet God says that there's no excuse for anyone not to know. God's presence is clearly shown. I mean, the fact that things cannot happen naturalistic the way they do and everything definitely shows us that God, God says. Now, they have blinded themselves and they have not accepted that it's God. Uh, we look at the scientist in the, in the world of trying to figure out how things began, knowing that things can't happen the way they, that evolution says it does, uh, they know that life doesn't spontaneously generate, but because they will refuse to accept that there's a God, they will literally say, and one of them was quoted the other day in a, in a video we were watching, we know that spontaneous generation of life does not exist, but here we are, therefore I believe in spontaneous generation. Okay, and that's the kind of stuff that the scientist will say. We know that it doesn't happen, but we don't want to accept God, so therefore, even though the impossible happens, blinded they are, they're still reminded often. Oh, that's exactly what God's saying. Yeah. He's going to keep reminding them. Here is your proof. 
Okay, world, you don't believe that I created it. You know the spontaneous you know, generation can happen, but yet here you are. So either it's me or what are you going to believe? You know that you can't have anything out of nothing, but here's the world. So how did you get the world? You have to have some supernatural activity. So all these people activity. are on the wide road there. They're uh, constantly aware. They're fighting. They've blinded themselves to it to a degree, and they've rejected it. They've rejected what they don't want to believe. And man is so capable of lying to him to himself. And we've all done it. We've all done it in every part of our life, you know, and, and before we're saved, we've done it a lot. Um, but it is one of those things where if you open your eyes and just examine things a little bit, it'll take you to God every time. Because you look at it and you say, Okay, science proves that there's a God. It really does prove there's a, that there's a God. Now, not necessarily our God, but it proves that there is a supernatural entity that started, that was the prime mover. You look at all the things around us and the, the, the neat packaging of it and how everything all works together in, in, a, in a very unified, perfect way, and you're going, something had to start this. It didn't just happen by coincidences. We look at you know, life itself, we look at relationships, we look at emotions, we look at morality, right and wrong. You know, morality is the big, one of the biggest problems that people have because there is no reason that morality should have ever evolved. There has to be somebody who put a moral compass in us. Because otherwise, if you're really going to follow evolution, what is right, what is wrong? If you're strong in, in getting away with it, then you're right. And people go that way when you, that's the, the whole thing about evolution. If we are nothing but animals, then whoever's strongest gets to have their way. And there's, there's no right or wrong about it. If it's totally evolution, and as somebody had said, you know, how long would the lion survive if he felt sorry for the poor antelope that he brings down for, for uh, lunch? You know, he's not sorry that he did it. He's hungry. He took down, he took the animal and he eats it. I'm strong enough to do this, I'm, it, it's weak, and I'm going to eat it. And this is what Hitler did. Hitler was a person who believed in evolutionary thought. He felt he was strong enough to impose his will and purify the human race with his Aryan nation, and he tried it and came very close to doing it. But he was outworking the idea of evolution. I want a pure race. I want to get rid of everybody who doesn't belong here. Uh, we get all these mass shootings. Basically, it comes down to we've been teaching our kids that they're nothing but animals, evolved animals, and an evolved animal, the strong, the strong survive and the weak deserve to die. So why not go kill as many people as you can to, to weed out the ones who aren't fit to live? This is, this is what's going on. The more we get away from God, the more we see evil, and the more we see evil, the more we prove that there's a God. It's, very clear when God says, it's evident that I'm here. It really is. Now, most people are not going to see it till they get to heaven. And God reveals it to them at the white throne judgment and says, here's where I showed you me. Here's where I showed you me. This is where you saw me. This is, this is where you saw me. This is where you saw my grace. This is, this is where you heard the message. You know, That's the whole thing of the white throne. The white throne judgment is God showing them every time that they rejected him and why they're going to be cast into hell because they rejected him because that's the only reason you're being sent to hell you rejected Jesus Christ and for those of us who have accepted Jesus it's the only re reason we're going to heaven is because we accepted him so the, the whole the whole of 
God's work is, what are you going to do with, with him and, and Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Accept him or reject him? And when you stand before him, he's going to say, you've rejected me. Here, here, is, here is the multitude of times. And it would really start with every new day that they had to live. God giving them the grace and mercy to have a new day. And then all the things that happened to them in that day. It's easy to use, you know, what if I'm right? I love that one. I mean, I love to go, what, what if you're wrong? Because I know how I'm going to answer it. If I'm wrong, I have not lost anything because of the life God has given me to live. So, but what if they're wrong? They're facing eternity in hell. And I have no, no doubt, I've, I have enjoyed my life with God. And the very fact that I've enjoyed my life with God is my proof to him that he is who he says he is and is going to take me to heaven. So, but if this is all that I have, I've not lost anything. I've been very happy with what he's given me. All right. Uh, and verse 11 says, and if, okay, if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion of it and the going, goings out thereof and the comings in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight that they shall keep the whole form before them, and all the ordinances of, and to do them. And this is kind of an interesting statement, but he's saying the same thing he's been saying all along. You know, when God gave them the laws, they go, yeah, we're going to keep the laws, and God says, you can't keep the laws, but here they are. And there's a lot of rules that God does want us to do, and he's going to change us, and he's going to sanctify us over time. And as I've said so, many, so often, he fills us up, and then he comes out of us, and we keep, all the, you know, we keep the rules that we can't keep because it's him doing the work. And this is what's so important. I cannot keep all of these. And forms literally mean designs and fashions and, and, and forms. And so... God says, I'm going to give you all these rules. And part of these rules are just to show us that we can't keep them, but we turn them over to God and, and then let him work them out for us. What, what would forms be? Forms literally means uh, designs and fashions. You know, his, his statements, his designs, his, what he wants done. Uh, it starts out, you know, in the first part, show them the form of the house or the design of the house that he's been talking about. Uh, and the fashion thereof, or the way it's the way it's been uh, cleaned up and designed, and it's the same word actually. At that point, do you have any uh, relationship to tradition? Is that wrong use? Not so much. It literally is what God wants us to do. So, in one sense, you might say tradition, but tradition has a lot of negative baggage attached to it. Uh, this is what we do by tradition. I don't really have any reason behind it necessarily. This form and design talks about a plan and a, and a direction behind everything that's going on more than tradition. Uh, there's a reason behind it. If you have something that's designed, you can go back and say, okay, why did you plant this footing so deep? This is why. Why did you build this wall here? What wall is a load-bearing wall? There's a design behind it. If you use the word tradition, it's more of, well, this is just always the way we've done it. Don't ask me why. I made clear by that verse two by your traditions, you may not avoid the the laws, the which would be the forms or designs of God. Uh, so, I, in one sense, yes, tradition things good can become a tradition, but God is not looking for us to do tradition. 
He wants us to, as Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together. God wants us to know what it is he expects us to do and why. All through the scriptures, he talks about the why. And too often when you're under tradition, you don't want somebody to ask why because you don't know why you're doing it. It's just, you know, dad did this and grandpa did this and great grandpa did this. Don't ask me why we're doing it. This is just what we have always done. And that could be good or bad. But God is wanting us always to say, I've got a reason the form and design, my, my plan. Years, I got caught up in that so many years with a lot of traditions about the years. Yeah, and it's not just the Catholic faith. Even Baptists have a lot of traditions that they do. The average Baptist church, not so much now, but there was a time when, the, when you went to a Baptist church, you knew what was going to happen. You were going to have uh, announcements, three songs, offering, special song, preaching, and altar call and a doxology of some sort at the end. Pretty much those were, that was your routine. That was, you know, it was the tradition. That's what you were going to do. And it's, and it's not just that. Even, even with the charismatic movement, they would, it's more, we're going to have 20 or 30 minutes worth of choruses and songs, and we're going to have an offering and a, and a message. And that was their tradition. That was, and they would, like to, they would tell you, no, we don't have a tradition. Well, I went to a lot of them, and it was like, 20, 30, 20 to 30 minutes worth of singing and an offering and a message. And that was their tradition. And they would try to tell you, no, we don't have traditions. We are living by the Spirit. And humans like traditions. Traditions give us patterns and expectations of what's going to happen. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with it until we make the traditions more important than the reason behind the tradition. And like I say, some traditions can be good. And that's why I said, you know, I can understand tradition fitting in there, but it, tradition has too many negative connotations to be that idea because God's saying, I've got a plan. I've got a plan for the way you're going to live and I have a reason for it. And that's why Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together. Let's look at what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. Peter says us, tells us, be ready always to give an answer for what you believe. And... This is why I stress with so many of the Christians, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Because so many times we do our children a disservice by not telling them what we believe and why. We just raise them up with traditions. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to believe. And then when they get older and they're trying to decide what, what they believe, and it's like, okay, do I believe my mom and dad's traditions that they never gave me any reasons for? Or do I believe something else that I can find some reason for. And this is one of the reasons why we have to give the reason, the design, the form. God has a plan. What is that plan? Let's explain it. I hear that all the time from her. I know that's the reason that she has, has uh, turned herself from religion, so to speak. Or... But that's the problem with religion in, in, in anything. That's why it's been said so often, Christianity is not religion, it's a relationship with Jesus. And when somebody's been raised up in religion, they don't understand that, that God wants to have a relationship with them. All they know is how bad that traditional religion ceremony was. I get that all the time. Or how boring that ceremony religion was. Maybe not even bad, but how boring it is. And, you know, and it is true. It is boring to just do things out of tradition, ceremony. And that's why it's so fresh. God says, my mercies are new every morning. And he literally means he's new every day. 
I love serving God because it is never boring. It's never repetitious to serve him. Yeah, and just to be able to lift him up and to glorify him and know that he wants to love me. And that's the thing that tradition and, and ceremony doesn't bring out. It doesn't bring out that God wants to love us. All we do is do these ceremonies out of just rote practice or maybe out of fear. This is the sad thing even amongst Christians is there are so many Christians that don't really understand God loves them and wants to love them. And, you know, and I've said it over and over again. I, I kind of picture it as most people having this image of God playing whack-a-mole. If I just stick my head up to love God, he'll smack me over the top of the head and smack me back down to the hole. And unfortunately, that is the way most Christians look at God. God is just waiting for a reason to smack me instead of looking for a reason to bless us. And that's why when you read David's Psalms and you see that he just understood how David wanted, how God wanted to love him and to bless him. And we look at all these different individuals who just knew that God wanted to bless them. Moses leading the people of Israel all through the wilderness saying, won't you understand God wants to love you? Just give him that opportunity to love you. And we see coming down to this world to love us, to die on the cross for us. And, you know, the whole idea of dying on the cross and how he could have just called, you know, the angels of heaven, the hosts of heaven to come rescue him and destroy this world. And yet he chose to die on the cross so that we could be accepted by him. You know, it's just amazing when you think about the love of God. And yet so many people don't understand that God loves them. Even people who grow up in the church don't understand that God loves them. They've heard nothing but laws and rules and, and God is angry with you. And, and yes, there's times God's angry with us, but he lo his love keeps, keeps us and his love keeps moving us forward. Yes, he'll give us the spankings that we need. Yes, he'll give us the discipline that we need and the correction we need, but he still loves us with all of that. And that's what we need to express to these people who are angry about religion and rules and and all. And when people will, you know, people, and I know they do it honestly, but you get these Christian groups that are picketing abortion clinics or, you know, homosexual events and everything. And yes, I understand what they're doing, trying to get them to, to see the sin, but that's not going to help these people see the sin. Because what they don't, they don't see love in all of that. And God loves them, even though he's going to punish them for it, he still loves them. Even though they're sinning, he still loves them. And too many times as Christians, we come out with this real strong viciousness that comes out against people when God is saying, show them my love, lift me up, lift me up. Uh, God's Not Dead 3 was all about that. The pastor was getting, you know, fighting for his rights, fighting for what he wanted. And at the end of the, end of the, by the end of the movie, he'd finally just said, this is not what's supposed to happen. You know, I need to show God's love. And everything just turned around, you know, when he started showing love. And, you know, too many times these people are looking at Christians and saying, all you do is hate. And unfortunately, many of these Christians seem to be as big a hater, maybe not as violent as some of the other groups, but just as much hate is pouring out of them as any other group pours out. And we've got to be careful. 
yes, they're sinning. Yes, that it's awful. Yes, it's disrupted. Yes, there needs to be something done. But we need to do it in love and, and care for them, not out of anger and vengeance and attacking. And as you have know, said so many times, it's sad to look at this world and see where it's going. But I want to reach out to it, the love to people. You know, God hates what they're doing, but he still loves them enough to have died for them and will forgive them if they just turn to him. And that's what it's all about. And this is what this section of the verse is saying. If they just show that shame and that repentance, God's saying, okay, now, now we're going to show you what I want you to do. And I'm going to give you the power to do it. Because this is the laws that I'm giving you, and, and I am going to give you the power to live by these laws. And we can't live by God's rules without him giving us the power to do it. It just isn't going to happen. Because we don't have that power. We have a sin nature that wants to sin. And by letting him indwell us, we can love people. And we can show them God's love, and we can lift up Jesus. And when Jesus is lifted up, he'll draw the people to, him, to them. And that's what's important. Not religion, not rules, not traditions. Uh, you know, and very important to just be able to say, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to do something totally different with God, and we're going to watch God work. And even that, though, can be a tradition at times. You know, we're just going to shift everything around when we come together. And that can become a tradition. Might start, And this is the problem we have as human beings. Things start out as a godly way of doing things, and we just keep doing it the same way, and it becomes our tradition. And we lose the power of God behind it because, wow, this is what worked. All right, That worked 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 5 years ago. What is God telling us to do today? He is new and fresh each day. And he doesn't want to see us doing the same thing for you know, a decade and saying, well, this is what God wants. Uh, and this is what's really important. It's been said that in the, fir in the first century church, if the Holy Spirit was taken out of it, 90% of what was going on would stop and only 10% would keep going. And in today's churches, if the Holy Spirit was taken out, probably 90% of what goes on would keep going on and only 10% would, would stop. And I think the odds are probably pretty true. There's so much we do that is just tradition and pattern and it's the way we've always done it, so we're going to keep doing it this way. And God's over someplace else saying, hey, I'm way over here. Are you guys going to come join me? And you know, we need to be very sensitive to, are we doing what God wants? Are we looking to, to worship him the way he wants to be worshipped? All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day and this evening. We thank you for your word. Lord, help us to learn to live the way you want us to learn. Help us to express your love to others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.